God, we do, we come and exalt you in this place this morning. I pray, God, that you, uh, through our worship, uh, though uh, we could worship all day, uh, I pray that you were satisfied and are satisfied with our hearts, God. It's not about the words that we sing. It's not about the style of music. It's about our hearts. And God, I pray that uh, even now you would stir an affection for us, uh, for you. And so... We give you this morning, we give you the rest of the time that we're here. We pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, would transform our lives through the reading and teaching of your word. We give you this morning, be pleased in this place. We pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 5. If you haven't been with us, we've been journeying journeying verse through verse through the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah is the prophet of God that God used uh, in the the day of his people to bring his people back into Jerusalem so that they could have a place to worship. And if you haven't been with us, you're welcome to go online and uh, listen to the previous messages. Um, But here's these people, the people of God have been taken into exile uh, by their enemies and they have no place to worship. And so in chapter 1, the heart of Nehemiah stirred for his people to have a place to worship and to worship safely. In uh, chapter 2 he goes, and um, uh, chapter 1 is all about God's servant heart for his people. Remember, uh, Nehemiah, the word comes to Nehemiah, and Nehemiah, his heart is broken for his people. Though he's never been to Jerusalem, his heart is broken because his people, and he has no place to worship a holy God. Chapter 2 is all about God's servant uh, going to get a request from King Artaxerxes to go back to rebuild the walls, and it's a preparation. So the first half of chapter 2 is the request that the God's servant makes to the king, and the second half of the chapter is all about his preparation to rebuild the walls. Chapter 3 is about the work. You remember in chapter 3, Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem, he waits about three days, and then on the third day they begin to work to repair the walls. And chapter 3 goes verse by verse about uh, the, the two and a half mile stretch of the wall being rebuilt. Uh, two weeks ago we looked at chapter 4. Chapter 4 is God's attitude towards opposition from outsiders. So in chapter 4 what happens is that these two governors come to the people of God and begin to bring opposition to the people of God to discourage them from rebuilding the wall to have a place of worship. And this morning we'll look at uh, chapter 5. Chapter 5 is God's servant's attitude towards opposition from the insider. Not only is there opposition from the outside, from those that aren't part of the Jewish uh, community, but now in chapter 5 we'll look at how there's opposition inside, uh, inside the camp of God. It's beginning to bring discouragement to the people so much so that they no longer want to rebuild the wall. And so this morning, we'll look at the problem, we'll look at the solution, and we'll look at the example. So the first five verses are the problem. What is going on here in Nehemiah chapter 5? What is all this opposition that's occurring inside uh, the Jewish community, inside the Israelites? And so for us, as we prepare our own hearts this morning, uh, I read a quote uh, this week in a, in a journal article that talked about uh, there is often so much opposition outside the church of God 
Uh, but historically, the more the opposition is within the walls of the church rather than outside the walls of the church. Secular people don't break up churches. There's never been a secular split in a church. It's always been a split inside the church from godly people. And that's what we have here. In this moment, in chapter 5, we begin to see disgruntled people, disgruntled children of God become um, attacking one another and taking advantage of one another. And so Nehemiah is going to talk about that problem in chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. Let's look at that uh, this morning. Verse 1. Now there arose a great cry. Underline that in your Bible. I'll come back to that one word. Of the people and their wives against the Jewish brothers. Underline brothers in your Bible. There were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us get, get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money from the king's tax of, on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. So the first thing we see the problem in chapter 5. The very first word, there's this outcry. That same word outcry is used in the Exodus story where the people of God are crying out to God because they're in bondage. So all the way fast forward, here's the people of God that have been brought out of, ex out of um, Exodus into the promised land. They begin to worship God freely. And now all of a sudden you have the same word from generations ago that there's this outcry, there's this desperation because of the situation they're in. And so what is their outcry? What is the situation they're in? Just a few things we see. The first thing is this. Remember last week and the week before, these men had left everything to go work on the wall. Re remember, in chapter 4, Nehemiah calls the people of God to come and leave everything they have and not keep going back and forth from home to work site, from home to work site, because of the attack they had begun to have been placed on them. So Nehemiah calls the men, hey, I need you to be here 24-7 to rebuild the wall. And we're not, we're not rebuilding the wall. I need you to, to defend those who are rebuilding the wall. And so we see all of a sudden these men have been taken away from their homes to do the work of God and their families at home are now suffering. The men are no longer there to work the fields is what's happening. So as they say in this chapter and chapter 5 verse 2 he says that we may what eat and keep alive here's these people here's the problem hey nehemiah we're getting real desperate and we're getting real hungry and we've got nothing to eat we're going to see how that becomes this huge problem and it's not because of the what they have it's because of how they're being taken advantage of are their brothers their brothers are taking advantage of them so much that they're robbing their table of the food. So the first thing we see, they left everything behind to work on the food or, or to work on the wall. The second problem is that now they're without food back home. There's no one to work the fields to put the grain on the table or the grain in the sacks to bring to them at the wall. So now these men are working tirelessly. I don't know if you've ever 
worked outside or worked hard, um, sometimes water just doesn't cut it. Like a good meal in the middle of the day, you need a good meal to get energized. And so here's the people of God, they're working tirelessly to rebuild this wall so that they can have a place of worship. And now they're beginning to get discouraged because they're beginning to get tired and hungry. And so we could say, man, that, those are huge problems. The rest of the passage, the rest of these verses, verses 3, 4, and 5, really exemplify the problem. The third thing we see is, what does it say? It says this, that we, they're, they're mortgaging their fields, they're mortgaging their vineyards, and their houses, and their grains because of the famine. There's been this famine that broke out. Because there's this famine, they don't have enough food um, to even make money off of what's in the field. So now they're having to mortgage their homes to be able to, to get enough money to put back in the field to make money. And so this, this crisis is breaking out. And verse 5 really shows us the problem. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers and our children as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for the other men have our fields and our vineyards. Um, so he, here's what they're saying, is that the rich people that had come out of exile had become, the rich get richer, right? We always see that, the rich get richer. Uh, how are the rich getting richer? The rich are getting richer because they're exploiting the poor people in their own community. So the problem isn't now, hey, we have these uh, opposing armies that are taking advantage of us. Now we have the opposition within our own community. The rich are no longer distributing their wealth to the poor in the community. The wealthy men and the wealthy women, the wealthy families are explo exploiting the Jewish people. So much so that these Jews are now calling their poor brothers and sisters to sell their children back into slavery, what they'd already come out of, to work the fields because the rich people don't want to work the fields. And so now internally, in this community, you have the rich exploiting the poor. And the poor people crying out for help over and over and over and over again. I couldn't imagine, I don't know if you can, that last uh, part, that they were selling their children to be slaves. And not only that, but their brothers and their sisters, that's what it says, that's why I said, underline the Jewish brothers, the Jewish brothers were doing this to them, that they were selling their sons and daughters into slavery, what God had already brought them out of uh, some hundred years before in the egg. In the Exodus story, now they're selling them back into slavery, but they're selling them back into slavery to their Jewish brothers and sisters. And so there's the problem. The problem isn't just that they don't have food. The problem, the real problem we see in this story is the exploitation of the poor. That no one has given a voice to the poor. No one's given the, voice, the, the poor a voice to even have the freedom to go back and gain the, the grounds to bring food back to the table. And so the rest of the passage, we see the solution to the problem. But it's important to understand what the problem is. The problem is not those outside the family of God. The problem is those inside the family of God. 
And as I was preparing this week and thinking this week and praying through this passage, I, I came to this first five verses and thought to myself, God, do I do that to the family of God? Do I take advantage of people that call themselves believers for my own vantage point? My hope is that today, this morning, as you sit here, you'd ask that same question. God, how am I like the people? So often we can come to the text and come to Scripture and say, man, I'm glad I'm not like that person. But we must come to God's Word instead of saying, how am I not like that person? How am I like that person? That's what God's Word is all about, to reveal to us how we are like the people in the Word of God. And so for us this morning, before we get to the solution, we must see for ourselves how are we like them in the story. How are we like them in the story? And now, the solution to the problem. Verse 6 through 13, I'll read and come back to teach. I, Nehemiah, was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words, I took counsel with myself and brought charges against the nobles and the officials and said to them, you are exacting interest each from your, his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold uh, to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent, could not find a word to say. The nobles were silent by what Nehemiah had said. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and the oil that you've been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I, Nehemiah, called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my garments and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise so may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Just a few things that we see. The solution. The solution must always start with anger. You may be looking at me like, what? What is he talking about? The anger is what motivated Nehemiah to bring about the change. And so often in the church we hear, hey, do not be angry, do not be angry, do not be angry. But in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, it says, be angry and do not sin. Anger is the very thing that gives us the passion to go and bring about change. Here's what Chip Dodd says about anger. I love his book. It's called Voice of the Heart. It goes through eight emotions. One of his emotions is anger. And this is what he says. Anger exposes what we value and expresses our willingness to do what is required to reach that value. 
See, Nehemiah was angry that the people, the poor people in his day, were being exploited by the Jewish people, and that caused such an anger in Nehemiah. It showed Nehemiah what he truly valued. What he truly valued wasn't that people were being exploited. He chose and showed that he valued people. All along this journey for Nehemiah was not about the task. It was never about the task of rebuilding the wall. It was all about allowing people to be in relationship with God and one another. And what happens here in chapter 5 is that the people of God were coming against the other people of God and they were no longer in relationship with one another. Therefore, they could no longer be in relationship with God. And that makes Nehemiah very angry. It showed what Nehemiah valued and how much he valued it. It says, he goes on, Chip goes on to say this, it allows us to stay with our values, take sides, and even die for what we believe in. That is what anger does. Anger is a great emotion. Just the same way fire is a great tool, fire must be contained the same way that anger must be contained. When anger gets out of control, it can cause havoc. And so we need to come under what Nehemiah does. You see it at the very end of the chapter. He's under the submission of God. Because he's under the submission of God, he's able to have control over his anger and have a passion to bring change to the people of God. And so how does he do that? He does it three ways. How does he bring a solution to the problem? The first one is this. You see it. He says, I was very angry. We must become emotional people. Church, we must become emotional people. So often our society says, hey, emotions are a bad thing. God's Word says, no, emotions are a great thing. It has to start with emotions. Like if we're really going to impact this community for the, for the, for the things of God, we must have a, an emotional response to the lostness of our community. We cannot have just a, a thought about it. We have to have a, an emotional reaction when we see lost people dying and going to hell. It's got to start with an emotion. Jesus was the most emotional person to ever walk the planet. Remember when he overlooked Jerusalem, he wept. When he walked into the temple, he had anger, it says, and he flipped over tables. Remember, he was emotional when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. He wept and he cried so much that it made him bleed. Jesus was a very emotional person. We must be emotional people, church. But it must be come under the submission of God. And I think that's where the next thing happens. We must have our emotions. You see, what happens is Nehemiah does not uh, react with his emotions, but he responds with his emotions. You see, Nehemiah was not a reactor. You see, when we have emotions and we don't do anything with our emotions or do what he does next, he led into the process of his emotions, right? He says, man, I was very angry when I heard their cry and these words, verse 7. And what did he say? I took counsel. So he has these emotions, but he knows, man, if I just react off my emotions, it could go bad. I must go take counsel. I must go get away with the Lord. That's what it means. That word, take counsel with myself, is, hey, I have these emotions, and now I'm going to go, and I'm going to surrender them under 
to the Lordship of Christ and see what Christ says to do with my emotions. So often we don't do the process part that Nehemiah does. We have these emotions. We get angry, and in our anger, we react. And it's in our reaction that we cause great harm to other people. That's how the church gets split. That's how what's happening here. All these people are having these emotional responses that there's no food, and they begin to react rather than respond. The rich people react by, hey, man, it's not looking good, so we better react. We're getting fearful. We better react and put them into slavery so that we're never hungry again like we were. And the poor people react rather than respond and begin to cry out to whatever they're crying out to so they don't go back into slavery. But they never do what Nehemiah does and takes the counsel, the process part of the emotions. We must process our emotions. Whether that's journaling, whether that's talking out loud to another human being, whether that's praying to God, we must move from our heart to our head to process. Because if not, we'll continue to just react. But what does Nehemiah do? He takes his emotional reaction to a process so that he's able to respond, which moves him to an appropriate action. Right? Because Nehemiah had all the justification in that moment in their outcry to go and react to the nobles and the officers, but he slows down enough to say, God, what would you have me do? And in obeying what Christ said to him, what God says to him, he goes out and he acts upon what God had just sowed him. He responds to the people rather than reacts to the people. I just wonder how the rest of this chapter would have been written if Nehemiah had not done verse 7, if he did not take counsel with himself. I I don't know about you, but if I were Nehemiah in that moment, I'm seeing these brothers uh, exploit these other brothers, man, I, I would have been a hot mess. But Nehemiah sees and knows who he is as a person and goes away and processes those emotions. And then he moves to action right after that. He takes counsel, verse 7 says. And then, after the counsel I took, I brought charges against the nobles. The first thing that we see, the solution is we must become responders rather than reactors. That can play out in so many different ways. In our marriages, in our relationships with our children, in our relationship with our friends, in our relationship with the church. How often here in this church have we reacted rather than responded? Over 141 years. I think history has showed us that we've been more reactors than responders. And I think that's true for the church universal, not just Powell's Chapel. The most heartbreaking thing that I hear as a pastor, and even more so as a Christian, is when church split. You see, because we go back to Acts chapter 4, we go back to Acts chapter 2, we go back just through the book of Acts, and we look at the book of Acts, there was never church splitting, there was church gathering. That day after day after day after day, it says that many came to the church. And we look around this church, we look around the church in America, there's more 
splitting than there is gathering. I'll get to that here in a few moments. So the next solution was confrontation. Nehemiah first confronts their sin privately. When we see a problem, which is a sin, we must be, uh, have the willingness to confront. And so what does he do first? He first uh, brings their uh, sin to them privately, right? That's what he says. I, I went to them, in verse 7, and said to them, um, what you're doing is wrong. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials and said to him, you, this is what you're doing. You're exacting interest each for his brothers. But we must first, when there's a problem, we must go to our brothers. This is what Matthew 18 Verse 17 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. How often in the church do we make it a public matter before we have made it a private matter? That's called gossip. And so what Nehemiah does is he goes to them, him and him alone, and confronts the nobles by himself. Exactly what Jesus tells us in Matthew 18. Verse 16 of Matthew chapter 18 says this, But if he does not listen, take one or more others along with you, that every charge may be established by the witnesses of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be as a Gentile and a tax collector, meaning let him be outside of the church. He's no longer part of the fellowship. And so that's what Nehemiah does. He takes it first privately to them, and then he takes it to them publicly. You see, the other thing that we see, Nehemiah confronts them, uh, does so with the purpose of reconciliation. The whole purpose that Nehemiah went to confront them wasn't just to confront the sin, but it was to confront them in such a way to bring reconciliation, to bring them back into community. And so if our heart, the way Nehemiah, if our heart is not like Nehemiah's, if our heart when we go to confront somebody is not for the purpose of reconciliation, then we ought never to confront somebody. See, often we confront people so that we feel good about ourselves and so that one is right and one is wrong. But Nehemiah says, no, no, what I, my desire is that I would bring us all back into community because we have to be on community, in community, to do, accomplish the mission and the purpose of God, which is to rebuild the wall so we have a place to worship so that we can live in community with one another. That's what Nehemiah is doing in this passage. You see, the solution to the problem is always relational. You see, Nehemiah knew there, there was a relational problem between the two Jewish brothers, and he had to reconcile the relationship. The other thing that we see Nehemiah do is this. And it's so beautiful how he does it. He basically shows them how they're not living out the greatest commandment. In the rest of the passage, he, when he brings it to the, the public, he says, hey, you're not living out the greatest commandment. The other thing we see is that so often we must remember that when we call sin, sin, we cannot only do it privately, but we must do it publicly when it's affected the public. See, it wasn't just one thing to go confront the nobles. He had to then go and address the people of God to say, hey, look, this, we cannot live this way. 
So not all sin is private. Sin often has to be made public for there to be true reconciliation. And so Nehemiah brings it to the people. He says it in verse, um, in verse 7, and I held a great assembly together, meaning I brought all the people uh, together. This is the one moment in the story that the walls are not as important as the relationships. He stops the work of the wall because relationship is more important than the walls. It wasn't like, hey, we need the the best of the best to come and have this intervention. No, we need everyone. This whole community has been affected by their sin, so we must call the whole church together and address it as a family. If there was any time in the story not to take a break from the wall, it would have been this moment. They're almost done with the wall. Right, and that we're just coming out of chapter 4 where they had just had great opposition. And all of a sudden, their, their enemies would have seen the, stop, uh, the stoppage of the working on the wall and would have wanted to attack even more. And Nehemiah says, no, no, we must deal with this relationally. So he calls the whole assembly to himself and he addresses it through uh, what we call the great commandment. Right, He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all... This is what Jesus says in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. 39 says this, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Nehemiah confronts them first about how they're not loving their neighbor or loving their brother. He says that in the great assembly. He says this in verse 8, or verse 7. You are exacting interest, each of you, from what your brother saying you're not loving your brother you're not loving them well you're not doing what you know to do from leviticus chapter 25 leviticus chapter 5 is a whole chapter about how the israelites are to love each other and live into community and not to do what they've done not to take an israelite into slavery and if you do you ought never to uh, bring interest upon them they knew this which that's where the transition, he says, hey, how you're loving your neighbor, how you're loving your brother, isn't how God ever designed it to be. And then he addresses them with their relationship with God. He says to them, hey, this is what you're doing. He says uh, in verse uh, 9 and 10, in verse 9, ought you not walk in the fear of God to prevent the taunts of the enemies? He's saying theologically, That's about your relationship with God. This now reveals your relationship with God, you nobles and officials. Like, if you were fearing God, you would never have done what God had commanded you not to do. You're not walking in the fear of the Lord. And then he addresses them using God's Word. And he shows them, hey, in God's Word, God's Word says, to live this way. So he's saying, in your love for God, your love for God is off because you're not fearing God, and your love for God is because you're not understanding, you're not rooted in the Word of God. I wonder how many conflicts would be dissolved or never happen if the church really was founded on this. If we as the church really did spend quality time on our own, saturating our heart with the Word of God, how much conflict would not happen? 
You see, this problem of them exploiting the Jewish people showed more about where their heart was than where their actions were. That's so true for us here in the church. When conflict arises, we must first ask the question, how is my intimacy with the Lord? When I am in conflict with other people, I must ask the question, where's my intimacy with the Lord? Where's my time with the Lord? What does that look like in the last 10 days or so? Because if that's off, everything else is going to be off. If my foundation of loving God is off, then everything else I build on that will crumble to pieces. That's what we see here in Nehemiah. That the elite, that the nobles, the officials, those who claim to have a deeper relationship with God, we're no longer really spending time with God. And then the last one says this. He addresses them about their own testimony. So you're not loving God, you're not loving others, therefore you really can't love yourself. Why? He says it because he says that if you have no testimony, like the taunts of the enemies, are they're taunting what? They're taunting the people of God. Their testimony has been broken. Because what? We can go back to John 13.35. By this, you will, I, you, they will, they, who's they? The world, the people outside the church, will know that you're my disciples. By this, what's the by this? It happens at the very end of the sentence. That you love one another. You see, a lost world is going to know that we belong to Christ Jesus by the way that we have relationship with one another, not by whether we know God's Word or not. I read a quote this week that says this, a lot of people have felt the effects of a relationship with God without ever having a relationship with God. That is heartbreaking to me. That so many people can say they have these effects of what it would look like to have a relationship with God, but have no relationship with God at all. Here's what one writer said, and I stopped for about 10 minutes when I was reading this and thought, oh, no. He says this, old theologian. This is the question that all of us must ask every day. Are some people outside the church of Jesus Christ because I'm inside? Let me read that one more time. If that doesn't punch you in the liver, I don't know what will. Or kidney, or where, wherever you need to get punched. It punched me dead in the solar plexus. Like my, the wind was like knocked out of me. Are some people outside the church of Jesus Christ because I'm inside the church of Jesus Christ? Like, are people looking at me as a believer and saying, really? Why would I want that? And it goes all the way back to this question. How are we as a community of people loving one another? We live in a lost, desperate, hopeless world. Do you not believe that? Turn the news on today. This week has been wretched, horrifying, all over the world. In our own backyard. 
And are there people outside the four walls of this church that look into the four walls of the church and say, what is the point? I said this with great conviction yesterday. I went to the movies, which I might need, never need to go again. I was an idiot to the 16-year-old boy behind the counter. He tried, well, first of all, but that's called justification. Anytime you say first of all, that's called justification. He wanted to charge me $5.55 for a cup of water that he was pouring in the tap and about lost my mind. But I walked away from that and thought, that's not a testimony to give. It's $5.50. I walked away thinking, man, if that boy at 16 is looking at me and thinking, yeah, I did not leave the mark of Christ on him yesterday over $5.50. And I sat and I sat in a movie and was halfway present in a movie because I kept thinking over and over, oh God. That is not okay. And then halfway through the other half of the movie, I'm sitting there, and Tennyson was there with me, and I thought to myself, oh, God, please don't let her saw what I just did. Please. Now, it's a cup of water. It's $5. But he talked me back to this one question that I studied this week. Are some people outside the church of Jesus Christ because I'm inside it? over a $5 cup of water. I was heartbroken yesterday in that movie. I'm saying that as a pastor, as a Christian, like me, this happened to me yesterday. And I confessed to God, and I prayed to God, and I looked for that boy afterwards. I did not find him because I knew I needed to go make reconciliation because it's way more important to be in right relationship with that boy than it is to have the rightness of a $5.50 cup of water. I didn't find him. I didn't see him. But my prayer for the rest of the day, God, please don't allow that kid's interaction with me prevent him from ever coming to know you. Water. Water. The last thing we see in verses 14 through 19 is Nehemiah's example. For the sake of time, I won't read the passage. The first thing we see is in verse 15. He says this. He tells all the people what he's done and how he hasn't exploited them and how he hasn't taken advantage of them. And verse 15 says it this way. He says it this way. He doesn't do any of that to boast about himself. He says in verse 15, But I did not do so. How come? Because I feared God. Do we fear God this morning? Do I fear God this morning? It has to start with my fear of God this morning. I don't mean like a dog in a corner fear. I mean, do I have a holy reverence for the holiness and the renown and the greatness of of a sovereign God? Do I fear that God? Do I have such a fear that says he's in control and I am not in control? That he has pursued me and pursued me and pursued me and wants relationship with me and I have great respect and admiration and awe of God. That's what the word fear means here. Are we in awe of God this morning? 
or is he just another thing that we do? Do we have a reverence for the God of the universe? The second thing that we see is this, in verse 18. He says in verse 18, he goes on to say, hey, because I haven't done all this and I have fear of this, I haven't used um, what God has given me to exploit people that I've use this to bring generosity to people and I haven't done so from the king's hand or from his handouts to me. I've done it out of my own pocket is what Nehemiah says. He says every day I feed 150 people. An ox. I mean I can imagine slaughtering an ox every day but that's what Nehemiah does every day. Think about how many ox he had to buy for 12 years it says. Every day for 12 years, he killed an ox to give to the people so that they could eat. Not only did he do that, but he did six choice sheep and birds. And every 10 days, he he gave them alcohol, wine, in abundance, the greatest stuff there was. So the next thing that we see is that we must be a compassionate, generous people. Do we fear God, and out of our fear of God, do we give sacrificially you see because when we begin to give sacrificially it comes out of our fear for God because we see what God gave to us sacrificially do we realize that that God of the universe gave his only son for us there is no greater sacrifice than that that God would choose to redeem the world through one means and one means only, that is His only Son. He could have chosen any other means. He had done so in the Old Testament. But here in the New Testament, here what we believe as as Christians is that God sent His only Son to sacrifice Him for us so that we could be in eternity with Him forever and ever. And if we believe that, we'll have fear of God for that, and then therefore we will go and give sacrificially the same way. You see, this story, chapter 5, is all about opposition, but even more so, it's all about reconciliation. You see, how does the whole story end? How does it all end? Yes, we see the generosity in 4 through 19, but the, the, the culmination of the story happens in verse 13. It said, then all the assembly said, Amen. They came into agreement, and what did they do? They praised the Lord. You see, Nehemiah knew that if he could push and push and push people towards reconciliation, it would then turn into praise and adoration back to God you see our whole purpose of being a church is not just that we come and have fun but that we come and we live sacrificially and we live in unity with one another and therefore as a church of God we praise the holiness of God that only happens when we have all of who God is and we give sacrificially to all that we have around us are we a church that is going to fight for community more than anything else? Will we fight for unity more than anything else? Will we fight to bring unity to us rather than what I've said for the last few weeks through this sermon series is will we fight for um, 
what our convictions are or will we fight for what our preferences are? Because if we fight for preferences, I promise there will always be division. You see, that's what was happening in Nehemiah's day. They fought for what they believed to be true rather than their convictions of what God had said to be true. And we'll all go back to where do I and you individually stand in our reverence for God? Do you know God this morning? Not know about Him, but do you know Him intimately this morning? And out of that, do you live a life of sacrifice for other people the same way that He sacrificed His Son for you? If you're here this morning and you do not know this God, you do not have a reverence for God, I want you to hear loud and clear that there's the God of the universe that has loved you and has pursued you and has longed to be in relationship with you so much so that he gave his only son, his only begotten son, that if you would place your hope and your faith and trust in him, you would come into unity with God and you'd come into unity with other people. The beauty of this is that no matter what you have done, God has sent his son to reconcile. There, there is no sin that's unreconcilable. There's no amount of sin that's unreconcilable. That the God of the universe loves you so much, pursues you so much, and forgives so much. And all that we have to do is place our hope and faith and trust. There's nothing else that we have to do, and there's nothing else that we can do. If you do not know Jesus this morning, He is a Savior that loves you, and wants to be intimately connected to you. And all that we have to do is trust and believe and obey the same way Nehemiah did, the same way the people of God did. If you want to know more about this Jesus, come see me in the front. If you're here this morning and you're one of those other nobles or officials that's like, man, that message hit me to the core. I need to come and confess the same way that these nobles came and confessed because of your pride, because of your arrogance, because of your haughtiness. Come, the altars are open for confession. Confession leads to reconciliation with God and others. Let us pray. God, I pray for all of us this morning that this one question would ring in our hearts if we're believers. Are some people outside the church of Jesus Christ because I'm inside? God, I do confess to you just yesterday What a poor demonstration to that small boy on the other side of the counter just doing his freaking job. And I acted like an idiot. I confess that to you, God. I'm grateful that you redeem and you set free and you forgive. I'm grateful for your forgiveness. But God, in that forgiveness, I pray for my own heart that you'd never allow me to forget that moment. And that moment would be life-changing for me. God, I pray for any of us in this place that are like the nobles and the officials, God. We come to the altar this morning and we confess, God. God, I pray for unity in our church. 
pray for reconciliation in our church, God. It would be so true. If the outside world would look in at Palace Chapel and the people of Palace Chapel and ask questions because of our love for you and our love for one another. God, I pray if there's anyone in this place this morning that does not know you, has not trusted you as their Lord and Savior, that they would not leave here without that being assured in their heart. God, that even now through your Holy Spirit, you draw them to yourself. God, continue to do great things here at Powell's Chapel. But it will always start, God, with our unity with you and our unity with one another. Continue to grow us in that, I pray. We pray this all in the sweet name of Jesus. Amen.